22nd of February 2003. Hard-working family man Michael Willard of Musselbrook, New South Wales, is asleep on the downstairs couch. He wouldn't have known what hit him when he was shot through the head and killed instantly. This is the story of Michelle Willard, cunning stunt. I'm your host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, well tonight I have a very fucked up case to bring you. I was going to bring it to you last week, but the court case of that asshole Holden dropped and I knew a lot of people were waiting to hear what I had to say about that. Now, before I go on, there may or may not be a show next week as I'm getting a really special Christmas episode ready for you all. So let's hope that all comes together. So let's get stuck into this one. Now, This one will amaze you at how many rookie errors the perpetrator makes in planning and executing her plan. It's one of those cases where the whole point of the crime was to gain a financial advantage. But the planning was so fucked up, there was no way this woman was ever going to get away with it. Now, someone losing a life is one thing. But to lose it in such a way just makes it so much more frustrating. If she'd just run her plan and what action she performed past any any one of us true crime junkies, we would have just said no, 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 and poor Michael Willard would probably still be alive, enjoying the company of his family. I will be reading most of this from court records this week, but bits chucked in from me as usual. So let me introduce the main character of this bumbling fuck-up of a case. Michelle Willard, born 10th of March 1967, and from what I can see, she had a normal childhood. She was one of three adopted children and would go on to keep in contact with her adoptive parents throughout life. In 1985, at the age of 18, she was dealt with in the children's court on 10 counts of false pretenses. A year later in 1986, she was again convicted of a charge of false pretenses and one of stealing. On the false pretenses charge, she was given the benefit of a deferred sentence and on the stealing charge, she was required to perform 200 hours of community service. At the same time, she was convicted of another 17 counts of false pretenses on each of which she was sentenced to the rising of the court and required to pay compensation of $615 in total. Now, (laughs) this is the first time I've heard this. Sentence to the rising of the court means as soon as the court rises and the case is all over and done done with, that's it. That's the, as long as she came to court, that was her punishment. Anyway, 
1990, she was convicted of stealing and of making a false statement with intent to obtain financial benefit. In 1991, she was convicted of stealing and in 1994, she was convicted on eight counts of passing checks not met on presentation. On each occasion, she was given the benefit of non-custodial penalties. She has never previously been sentenced to a term of imprisonment. As you can see, she's just getting let off and off and off. And what happens when that happens? People start to escalate. Anyway, let's go on. So Michelle looks like she needs more money than she has and doesn't hold back in trying to get it dishonestly. A classic fraudster. Michelle then married Michael Willard and they would go on to have three daughters. The first in May 1989, then March 1992, and then in November 1995. Michelle lived in a supportive and loving relationship with her husband and children. Her husband worked very hard for the family and did a lot of overtime to try and make ends meet while Michelle took care of the family finances. Michelle was a friendly and sociable person with a large circle of friends and it said she also went to church regularly. Not that that makes much difference. Anyway, now in mid-1988, Michelle was the beneficiary named in two insurance policies taken out on the life of her husband, Michael Willard. One was issued by the AMP Insurance Company and the other by Australian Casualty and Life Insurance, operating under the name of National Mutual. On the 17th of August 1998, Michelle contacted AMP and stated that her husband had been killed in a mining accident on the 27th of July 1998. She said that she wished to make a claim on the policy. AMP sent the necessary claim forms to her and she completed them and returned them to the insurance company. One of these was a document entitled Death Claim Discharge the signature on which was witnessed by a solicitor that Michelle had not used before. Michelle had been told that a death certificate would be required by AMP and this she didn't have. This was because he wasn't dead. He was still alive. What's going on here? As a substitute for the required death certificate, Michelle used a medical pad she'd previously stolen from her general practitioner, Dr. Robert Malbray, to forge a medical certification of death. <sighs> After that, she kept calling offices of AMP on a regular basis, requesting, requesting that a claim be processed urgently, saying that she was in extreme financial difficulties as a result of the death of her husband. She claimed to have applied to the Register of Births, Deaths and Marriages for an official certificate, but to have been told that there was a problem with the records. A Ms Pappas, who was handling the matter at AMP, suggested she obtain a certificate in correct form from Dr Mowbray, but Michelle told her that Dr Mowbray was overseas. She then made up this bullshit story referring to difficulties she said that the children were having, saying that she could not get alternative verification of the death from the organisation who arranged the funeral because that had been arranged at the instigation of her husband's parents and she was not then on good terms. Michelle's request to AMP continued until at least the 22nd of September. 
Her representations to one of the employees handling her claim were so convincing that the employee herself was in tears. How sad is that? A&P employees fairly quickly became suspicious about Michelle's claim and made independent checks with the Register of Births, Deaths and Marriages and Dr Mowbray. As a result, no money was paid on the claim and the attempt to obtain the money failed. Michelle made a similar attempt to obtain the benefit of an insurance policy issued by National Mutual. This policy she'd taken out only a few days earlier for fuck's sake. Her attempts began on the 30th of July 1998. Michelle spoke to a sales advisor called Brian Chapman and told him a similar story to that she'd told of AMP employees. Again, she went into an elaborate bullshit story about the distress she and her children were experiencing. She also claimed to be in need of a sum of money to pay to a financial advisor whom she'd named as Peter Gain. We'll come back to him a bit later. She claimed AMP had paid out her claims on the policy issued by that company. On the 31st of July, she sent a handwritten letter by fax to Mr Chapman purporting to describe the circumstances of her husband's death and giving the name of solicitors she said were representing her. From early August 1998, she dealt with a sales manager called Paul Robinson, to whom she had made at least four telephone calls. She again claims to have received money from the AMP and said that AMP had not been as demanding in seeking information as National Mutual was. She complained about the conduct of the solicitor who she said had treated her cruelly and caused her distress. On the 28th of October, an investigator telephoned Michelle and she told him that the claim was a mistake that a person who had been living with the family had tried to make a claim on the policy and that her husband was alive and well and that she had private investigators looking at the matter. Cool story, bro. Now, let's talk about this Peter Gain, the so-called financial advisor that I mentioned before. Now, Michelle approached Mr. Peter Gain, who was not a financial advisor, but a car salesman, and signed a contract for sale of a second-hand Jeep Cherokee for a sum of just under $25,000. She initially told Gain that she was expecting money from the sale of AMP shares. She arranged for Mr Robinson from National Mutual to advise Gain in writing of the existence of the insurance policy that the sum insured was $200,000 and that National Mutual expected that that amount would be paid to Mr Willard's family. On that basis, Gain, being the typical car salesman type, released the Jeep into Michelle's custody. After a number of fruitless attempts to be paid, Gain repossessed the Jeep on the 28th of August 1998. Nevertheless, Michelle continued to contact Gain about her expectation of receiving funds from various sources. Fuck, this woman is tiring, isn't she? By this time, police are involved and Michelle is charged with two counts of attempting to obtain money by deception and an additional offence of attempting to obtain financial advantage by deception. Michelle was referred by her Dr Mowbray to a social worker, Ms Jane Collins, in February 1999. This was two days after being interviewed by police. Ms Collins noted that Michelle had attended for counselling on three occasions, but had cancelled on three other occasions. 
She reported mood swings over the previous 12 months. Ms Collins accepted Michelle's own assessment that she needed ongoing counselling and support. In addition to these reports, there was a psychiatric report written by Dr Graham Vickery, who found no evidence of clinically significant anxiety state, major depressive disorder, paranoid ideation, psychotic phenomena, thought disorder or impaired gross cognitive function. He thought her prognosis was poor in view of the entrenched nature of her behaviour. He said she was in a state of denial and was unable to show insight into her behaviour. She would be found guilty and receive a sentence of one year, however with a minimum of four months, which as far as I can see she did serve. The judge mentioned in her appeal that Michelle time and time again has been convicted receives a light non-custodial sentence, but goes out and offends again. I mean, who tries to claim for the death of her husband that is very, very much alive and think they're going to get away with it? Well, her husband being alive was a problem. Her recent conviction of trying to defraud the insurance companies didn't stop her planning her next move. Michelle met her young next-door neighbour, Danielle Wilkinson, around the end of 2002. Danielle, who was age 26 at the time, was a vulnerable, disturbed person with a serious meth problem. They would meet up in the afternoon and drink coffee and chat. Michelle would often lend Danielle a few dollars here and there, and they formed a close bond. Danielle had a very young boyfriend known as TJ, who was also a heavy meth user and aged only 17. I'll come back to Danielle and TJ later on. Now, Michael Willard had been working at an engineering firm since November 2002, doing a lot of overtime on a mining contract the firm had. However, this overtime would finish once the bulk of the work was complete at the end of February 2003. With the Willard family tight for money as it was, and with Michelle mismanaging what money they did have, she started thinking of a get-rich scheme again to help clear debts and pay the rent up to date. Michael had two superannuation accounts at the time. For those who may not know what they are, they are money put aside by law from your pay for your retirement. Both these policies had insurance in case of death attached to them. In early February 2003, an insurance company known as Pref Shore Life Limited contacted Michelle. She was asked whether she wished to reinstate a policy she had previously with that company. This was a policy which had lapsed at an earlier point of time. In the event, Michelle took out a new policy over the lives of herself, her husband and the three children, whereby a total sum of $35,000 will be paid out to her in the event of the accidental death of any of the persons covered by the policy. In addition, Westpac Bank had sent an information package by post to Michelle in February 2003. This was not solicited by her, but she clearly saw an opportunity for herself. On the 5th of February 2003, Michelle called a representative of Westpac Insurance and obtained cover for herself in the sum of $200,000. She made inquiries as to whether she could also cover through this policy her husband for the same figure. During the course of this conversation, she inquired whether the proposed cover on her husband would cover him 
if he was shot and killed. Red flag. She also asked how long it would take for a claim to be met once a claim was made. Doesn't she realise all these calls are recorded? Anyway, the Westpac representative informed her the cover for her husband would operate from the time that her husband phoned in to indicate his agreement to the cover being put in place. Later that afternoon, Michael, after being convinced by Michelle that it was a good move, rang Westpac and spoke to the insurance representative. Michael, just don't do it, mate. Drop the phone, drop the phone. No. Michael, trusting his wife, called Westpac and confirmed that he was content for the cover of 200000 on his life to be put into place. Now, remember, it's February 2003. Michael has lost his overtime at work, or soon to lose it, and his pay will be significantly reduced. And they were doing it tough even when he had the overtime pay. But she's increasing expenses with these insurance policies. Anyway, on the 6th of February 2003, Michelle attended the local Holden dealer and made inquiries about the purchase of a car worth about $40,000. Then, a bit later in February 2003, she showed interest in the purchase of a property at 37 Carl Street, Musselbrook. On or a On about the 14th of February, Valentine's Day, she made an offer to buy this property for $230,000 and the offer was accepted. These are not the actions of someone who needs to tighten the belt financially and I'm sure you've all guessed where this is leading. On the 19th of February 2003, Michelle calls the offices of the two life insurance companies from Michael's two superannuation funds and asks them what happens in the event of his death. I mean, jeez, that's just not suspicious, is it? The next day, while at the real estate office on the 20th of February, Michelle was talking to the agent about the Carl Street property and happened to mention that her husband was going to die that week. She went on to say that she knew of this because her psychic had turned over the death card and told her that her husband was going to die. What the fuck? You can't make this shit up, can you? So, while all this buying of insurance policies, looking for a new car and house is going on, Michelle and Danielle are having their usual afternoon chats over coffee. It's during one of these chats that Michelle asks Danielle if she would like to make some easy money. It's here that Michelle tells Danielle about her plan to have her husband killed and collect on several insurance policies. Now, Michelle has been grooming Danielle for a while, lending her money and letting her use a car. At first, Danielle is hesitant, but then reluctantly agrees to help her out. Especially for $20,000 each, Danielle tells Michelle that her new boyfriend has a .22 rifle and that he would be willing to be the hitman. Within days, they work out their plan and put it into action. I mean, how would you be? You work your ring out to bring home the bacon and your light-fingered wife is plotting to have you murdered. So now we come to Friday the 21st of February 2003. Remember in the previous two days, Michelle has called about the life insurance policies and told the real estate agent how her tarot card reading said her husband's going to die. Well, it's Friday night 
and the family are going out to the Royal Hotel at Musselbrook with their daughter Rebecca. They had dinner there and left about 9pm. They then returned to the family home. There was nothing to indicate that this was other than a normal family outing. About 9.30pm, Michelle went to bed in the main bedroom with her youngest daughter, Amy. The eldest kid, Rebecca, slept in the next room, although she went to bed sometime later that evening. It was the habit of Michael to sleep on a lounge in the family room close to the foyer leading off from the front door of the house. There was a wooden door and an external screen door at the front of the building. Michael watched them telly, then switched it off by the remote control, then crashed out on the lounge in his usual position, facing into the lounge itself. I mean, lounge sleeps can be so nice. Anyway, once Michelle knew Michael was asleep, she texted Danielle to tell her that the operation was on. Danielle drove to the Willards with TJ, who brought the .22 calibre rifle. Michelle went downstairs and unlocked the front door and fly screen, and went back up to bed. Danielle parked near the Willards, and TJ got out and entered the unlocked door. Armed with a hand-drawn map provided by Michelle, he was able to find Michael, as Michelle had said, asleep on the lounge. TJ steadied himself, brought the rifle up, and pointed it towards Michael, and boom, shot him in the head. TJ then ran out of the house, and he and Danielle drove back to the hotel room that Michelle had booked. Michelle, upstairs in bed, heard the shot and walked downstairs. Here she saw her husband, dead on the lounge where he'd been sleeping. You know, he wouldn't have had any idea what had happened to him. Michelle made no effort whatsoever to stem the flow of blood from his head. What she did do was grab a video camera bag, take out the camera and placed both on the floor, and she took out her wallet and threw that on the floor as well. At about 1.48am, Michelle made a triple O call seeking an ambulance. She told the operator that somebody had tried to break into the house and that they'd hurt her husband. She rang the triple O operator again at 1.55am and said that there'd been a break-in and that they'd done something to her husband. In the first call, She said there were things all over the benches and in the second call she said that she'd heard stuff being thrown on the ground. Senior Constable Peter McClay, the crime scene investigator who came to the premises on the 22nd of February 2003 said that apart from the camera equipment and purse on the floor in the family room, there was no other appearance in any other part of the house that there having been a disturbance or break-in. In particular, there were jewellery, watches, rings, cash and a mobile telephone on the kitchen area near the family room, none of which gave the appearance of having been disturbed. The observations about there being no evidence of disturbance in the house and at the front of the house was confirmed by other police officers. The police that attended the scene described Michelle as overacting and trying to dry reach into the kitchen sink. They also found a folder on the kitchen table containing the life insurance policies of her and Michael. Oh dear, red flags everywhere for the police. And as we true crime addicts know, the first place they investigate is the close family members, especially the other half. 
Michelle was initially interviewed later in the day of the murder, but this was followed up by another interview on the 1st of March. Both interviews were recorded and it seems like police quickly organised for Michelle's phone to be tapped after the first interview. After Michelle's interview on the day of the murder, she called Danielle to come over with TJ the next day to help clean up the so-called crime scene and they disposed of the blood-stained lounge that Michael had been sleeping on when he was shot. Michelle also wrote them out a cheque which Danielle and TJ tried to use that day to purchase stuff in town. I guess as the meth wore off and the realisation of what they'd done started to dawn on them, Danielle and TJ started to freak out. They were seen by Danielle's sister in an embrace, talking about what they'd done with Danielle clearly in distress. TJ approached the sister and told her that there's no need to worry, as Michelle had made it look like a robbery. (laughs) Yeah. So, on Michelle's second interview with police on March the 1st, there were a few discrepancies between it and the first interview, but basically the main theme was that she claimed to have been woken up by noises in the house. She said she heard a thump or a noise like a dropping noise. Then she heard a loud bang and thought that thunder had hit the house or something like that. She said that she walked through to the family room and saw her purse and the camera equipment on the floor. She walked past Michael, although she spoke to him briefly. She went to the front door, which was open with the security door unlocked. She said that she could hear a strange noise and she could then see blood on Michael's head. It was then that she went back to her bedroom and rang the triple O operator. Later in the interview of the 1st of March... When she was asked by the police whether she had any involvement in what had happened to her husband, she insisted that she'd loved him and that they had a good marriage and that she adored him. Now police had interviewed a neighbour that told them that he heard what he thought was a shot from a twenty-two rifle at around 1 to 1.30am. Now Michelle didn't ring the police until 1.48am. They would pick up on that. From what evidence they now had, Police arrested Michelle, Danielle and TJ on the 3rd of March 2003 and all three were charged with the murder of Michael Willard. Searches of Danielle and TJ's residence uncovered a bag that contained a handwritten map of the lower floor of Michelle's house with ticks on it where Michael would be found. Further investigations uncovered the location of the .22 rifle that TJ had placed in a backpack and thrown into a dam on the outskirts of Musselbrook, near where TJ's sister lived. Once forensically tested, it was found to be the same rifle that killed Michael Willard, and was of the type known to be owned by TJ before the shooting. Michelle maintained her innocence, and would plead not guilty at her trial. However, while in custody at Malawa Detention Centre, Michelle told a fellow prisoner that she'd offered Danielle Wilkinson and TJ $20,000 each for the involvement in the killing. She also admitted her part in allowing TJ into the house and then making it appear that there'd been an attempted robbery after the killing. Michelle also asked the prisoner to fabricate admissions and to tell the authorities that Danielle Wilkinson had made those admissions. This was to have the effect of implicating Danielle Wilkinson and TJ 
and further designed to persuade the cops that she had no involvement. Details of the story Michelle wanted her fellow prisoner to tell the cops were written by Michelle on a note which she gave to her. Also, Danielle Wilkinson told the same prisoner that she and TJ had dumped the towels used to clean up the premises and the blood on TJ's clothing and she told her where they'd been hidden. Danielle Wilkinson asked this prisoner to arrange to have somebody dispose of the towels. However, this information was ultimately conveyed to the police and the towels were recovered. They were identified as coming from the motel in which Michelle had booked for Danielle Wilkinson and TJ on the night of the killing. Now, just a word of warning. If you're ever arrested, the police will put you in a cell with someone who will try to make you talk. I'm just saying. Anyway, on the 6th of February 2004, Daniel Wilkinson pleaded guilty to the murder charge and on the 28th of May 2004 was sentenced to a total term of imprisonment of 22 and a half years. Justice Howie set a non-parole period of 16 and a half years to expire in September 2019. On the 28th of June 2004, TJ pleaded guilty to the murder of Michael Willard. He too was sentenced by Justice Howie to a term of imprisonment for a total term of 22 and a half years. The non-parole period again was 16 and a half years to expire in September 2019. So that's uh, nearly a year away they'll get their first parole hearing. That'll be interesting. Michelle pled not guilty, and so she went to a full trial. Now, rather than go into all the detail of the trial, as I've already told you most of the story, I'll just go over the best bit so you can facepalm while you get the rage for such a fucked up string of events. First, before the murder, Michelle tries to cash in two life insurance policies in her husband's name, even though he's still alive falsifying documents in such a way as they're quickly rejected by both insurance companies and she does four months in prison. She then concocts the plan to actually kill her husband this time after she realises that Michael has two superannuation accounts that both have life insurance policies attached. She then convinces Michael to open another insurance policy saying it's in the interests of the kids. She then enlists a couple of meth heads, promising them $20,000 each to kill her husband. And I mean, yeah, right, I reckon she was never actually ever going to pay that out. Michelle then tells the real estate agent that she's dealing with that she's buying the house because a tarot card reading told her that her husband was about to die. I mean, what the fuck? You Honestly, you just cannot make this up. She also tells a car dealer much the same thing when going to look at new cars. When Michael is killed, which is only days after she gets the new insurance policies, Michelle makes such a half-hearted attempt to make the crime scene look like a robbery gone wrong by taking the video camera out of the camera bag, placing both on the floor along with her wallet, which still has all the money and credit cards in it, and there were watches, rings and other valuable stuff spread out on the kitchen table as well. There's no sign of a struggle, and even though there is valuable stuff everywhere that could easily be taken if it was a robbery, nothing is taken. It's all still there. 
Shows you how greed got the better of Michelle, not even letting TJ take some of the stuff out of the house to make it at least look like there was a robbery. And the other thing, Musselbrook, honestly, most of the people there used to leave their doors and windows open. It's such a safe place. This this shit never goes down in Musselbrook. Go and move to Musselbrook. Then when Michelle is in custody, she confesses to her cellmate the whole story and tries to enlist her to make up another story to implicate Janielle and TJ as the only perpetrators. They then stick this cellmate in with Danielle and she tells her where the bloodstained towels are and tries to organise for her for them to get them destroyed. I mean, fuck's sake. What a bunch of absolute amateurs. Rookie mistakes all round. Even with all this, Michelle was still in denial that she'd done anything wrong. Well, she was found guilty and sentenced to a term of 36 years from the 3rd of March 2003 with a non-parole period of 26 years. The balance of the sentence is to be for a further 10 years. The first date on which she can be eligible for parole is the 2nd of March 2029. So that's a while away. Well, if this didn't concern the death of a hard-working, loving family man and three kids who now don't have any parents looking after them, then you'd have to laugh at the incompetence of it all. I suppose it makes it worse, if that's, the, if that's the right word, or maybe what makes it more frustrating, is that Michael Willard lost his life to a scheme that was doomed to fail from the outset, planned by an evil, greedy, scumfuck, half-wit of a wife, and actioned by a 17-year-old meth head and his 26-year-old squeeze. I mean, I don't want to be judgmental here, now <laughs> when am I ever judgmental? But those meth heads... A 26-year-old girl that hasn't worked a day in five years since taking up her meth habit. I mean, she's got two kids she doesn't even look after. Where'd she get this 17-year-old meth head boyfriend who also has never worked a day in his life and whose only possession of any value in his life is a .22 caliber rifle? Meth ruins so many lives. Sort of a side note, but this couple, I am sure, would not have done what they did if they weren't on meth. Let's hope prison has helped straighten them out. I mean, the whole story is just a giant fucking facepalm. So, that's the end of the show. Now, we we do the Patreon shoutouts now. Oh my God. This is one of the most unbelievable shows I've ever had to research. (laughs) Anyway, it is the end of the show. Let's get on with it now. So we have a Patreon shout-out, and thanks to Bella Kennedy for joining the island. Thank you so much. And remember, for as little as a dollar a month, you too can help out the island. Go to patreon.com forward slash truecrimeisland, or if you just want to donate one off, you can go to paypal.me forward slash truecrimeisland. Shout me a beer. But I do realise that it's coming up to Christmas, so if you need to pause your subscription or whatever, please, please don't feel bad at all. I appreciate all the pledges, all the past and all the present pledges, but I would never want anyone to give when they may not be able to, okay? I know a lot of Patreon subscribers also donate to several other shows, so please don't feel bad. It is Christmas. Merry Christmas. 
There is merch also at truecrimeisland.threadless.com where you can get yourself a mug of rage or T-shirt, beach towel or tote bag, something like that. I'll try to do a revamp of the shop in the new year with some new products and designs and stuff. But don't forget, if you're not happy with anything in the shop, just give Threadless a call. They'll make it good. Just let me know as well, please. Uh, Jasmine, I sent you an email about which mug you'd like to to get. We've got a couple of designs there. I reckon the best one I got the other day is the new rug of, rug of mage. We've got the rug of mage. No, the mug of rage one. That's great. I still have a few beer coolers left and plenty of key rings with lapel pins. I gave a few out at the meeting before. I think I told you last week, people love them. For that, I need you to contact me on my email address, which you can contact me for anything, cambo at truecrimeisland.com, so I can sort out what you want and where to send it, how much it costs, all that sort of stuff. Finally, you know you can spread the word to help out the island. You don't have to spend any money. Grab a friend or family member and tell them about the wide world of podcasting. There's so many people out there still don't know. And they will love you for it. Search on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for True Crime Island. Anywhere on the social media world. (laughs) Not anywhere. Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Well, that's about it for tonight. And lots of love to Maggie James. Thank you very much, Maggie, for all your support. So, this has been Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Boom, Good night.